Please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. That's where we'll spend our time today. In Homer's The Odyssey, it's, a, it's an ancient epic, and it tells the story of a Greek hero called Ulysses. And in one of the adventures that Ulysses and his men have, they set sail and they travel around the land of the Sirens. The Sirens were famous mythical creatures known for their beauty and known for their beautiful siren song, a song which they used to lure sailors towards their island only to crash upon the rocks and to perish. If they survived the crash, they were plunged into the sea where they died by drowning. And for those few that made it to the shore, the sirens themselves devoured them. Their song seemed so beautiful, but it betrayed the hearer and it led them to their death. Ulysses was desperate to hear the siren's song, but he knew that he was flirting with danger. How could he resist their call? Could he? In our passage today, the father, who we've been hearing from over the last several weeks of, of the studies in the book of Proverbs, the father presents a similar picture. King Solomon applies the wisdom we heard last week that we considered about guarding our hearts, and he applies that wisdom in one specific area. He applies it to the siren song of sexual sin. No matter who you are or what you believe about God or sex, you have most likely seen the power of sexual desire, and the ruin that sex gone wrong leads to in this world. You've likely seen that, whether you're a Christian or not. Broken marriages, secret scandalous affairs, unwanted pregnancies, sex trafficking, or the emptiness of trying to find ultimate satisfaction in fulfilling this drive. All of these leave lives ruined. How can we resist sin's seduction and not be shipwrecked on the shores of sexual sin? Well, if you haven't already, turn with me to Proverbs 5 and we'll find out. Follow along as I read the text for us aloud. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. 
She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan. When your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he's led astray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we consider his word. O oh Lord, would you speak to us today? Would you give us eyes to see more clearly, and ears to hear and to accept, and a heart that will obey and trust and follow your will? We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Father's sermon here is really mostly a warning. It's a warning to run from the ruin of sexual sin. That's the big idea that we see in Proverbs chapter 5, run from the ruin of sexual sin. And we'll see this unfold in two contrasting points. Point one, ruin. And we see this in focus in verses 1 through 14. So the father has another lesson for his son to listen to and to take to heart, to pay close attention to. And verse 2 tells us the result of the son listening and heeding the father's call. Listening will lead to living by wisdom, and wisdom will flow from his lips as well. His lips will be guarded by wisdom and will guard wisdom. Wisdom will guide his decisions and will shape his judgments so that he'll keep discretion. It means he'll walk carefully and not fall. Why does the son need that? Why does he need to do that? Because in a fallen world that we live in, it's full of sin and dangers. 
And the father focuses on the seductive snare of sexual sin in verses 3 through 6. Before we even consider what the father has to say, though, it's important to see that the father here is a model to us. He's, He's showing us that it is his responsibility to lead and to teach and instruct his children about God's good design for sex and marriage. He's to teach the son both in warning and in encouragement, as we'll see throughout chapter 5. And so, dads and mums, let me talk to you for a moment. It is our job as parents to instruct our children. We need to teach our kids about sex in light of God's Word, in light of His grand design, or other people will teach them. And it might be a ruinous view, one that destroys. And so, it's our responsibility to instruct our children. And that's not just the talk that you have one time in their lives. It's an ongoing conversation that you have with your children that's age-appropriate from when they're young to when they're ready to go and get married. Here in chapter 5, the father presents sexual sin in the form of a forbidden woman. The woman here is is sexual sin personified, just like we've seen wisdom personified in lady wisdom calling out in the street. And so, here the woman, the forbidden woman, is sexual sin in person. And while that might seem like men are the only one in this text that struggle with sexual sin, no, it goes both ways. It's not just men. Women struggle with this too. And so, women, you need to hear this message from the Father as well, not just the sons and the men in the room. On the surface, we see that sexual sin seems lovely, but underneath, it's lethal. It's deadly. And how are we tempted by this particular form of sin? Well, the first thing that the Father mentions here is, interestingly enough, her lips, not her hips. Her speech, he says, is smooth like oil. Oil in this time would have been a picture of joy. It would have been a mark of prosperity. In ancient times, it was used to, uh, to anoint a king or to anoint a priest. And so, oil here that's on her lips or her speech is like oil seems like a good thing. Oil was even, in fact, used in cosmetic uses to protect the skin and hair in dry climates, as we're kind of used to here in Dubai. Just think about beard oil for those men in here who have beards. It seems good, right? But just like the sirens, she lures them in with seductive speech, whispering sweet nothings, promising pleasure. And so her words woo. Sexual sin is alluring, and it begins with the temptation that comes through just words spoken, even before looks. One clear example of just how enticing and powerful sexual words can be is that over the last decade, the top three best-selling books worldwide, the greatest sales, were all from a series of erotic literature. 
They sold over 35 million copies, purchased by both men and women. Yes, sex sells, and it sells even in written form. More than that, words are almost always the very first steps towards adultery, in breaking up of marriages, ruining families. Alluring words pull marriages apart. And it may even seem innocent at first, these use of words. It's the colleague who flirtatiously laughs at your jokes, or the regular WhatsApps between you and someone of the opposite sex that nobody else sees. I just enjoy talking to him, you might think. I want to make sure that she's doing okay, you might tell yourself. It's just a little fun. We're just friends. That's how it starts. Now, I'm not saying if you're a man that you should never, ever talk to a woman who's not your wife or your mother, or vice versa, if you're a woman, that you can never talk to a man. But you must beware of not being guarded in your words with members of the opposite sex. You must be guarded. You might think it's harmless, but beware. Every word is a step down a path which is leading somewhere. Ask yourself about your words and how you're using them. In verses 4 through 6, it tells us where following her words lead you. Where do they head? It's to ruin. At first, she seems delightful, but in fact, she's deadly. She appears lovely, but she's lethal. It starts out sweet, but it ends up bitter. Her feet lead down to death, down to Sheol, down to the grave. And can you hear the urgency in the father's tone as he pleads with the son once again in verse 7 to listen, pay attention, take it to heart, follow my words. And what does he urge the son to do? Run. Run away. Take the long way round. Don't go anywhere near her. Stay far away from temptation. It makes me think of the story in Genesis. Do you remember Genesis 39, where Joseph found himself with a woman, a powerful woman, throwing herself at him, wooing him with her words? She said, lie with me. Joseph, lie with me. It's harder to get any more direct or forward with your words than that, right? How did Joseph respond in that moment? His lips guarded knowledge. He says, how can I do this great wickedness? How can I sin against God? And he fled. She refused to take no for an answer, grabs his cloak and tears his clothes off, but he flies. He runs in the opposite direction. And that's exactly what the Father's encouragement is for us to do with the temptation of sexual sin, to run away from her. Don't go near her. Run from the ruin of sexual sin. That's also Paul's encouragement that we just read earlier in the service from his letter to the Corinthian church. He says, flee from sexual immorality. He even tells Pastor Timothy, in 2 Timothy, flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, he says. 
run from the ruin of sexual sin. And the Lord Jesus says that it's better to lose an eye or a hand than to sin in this way and face the ruin of fraternity under God's judgment in hell. Run from the ruin of sexual sin. The stakes are high, friends. God cares about sexual purity. He cares who you sleep with. He cares who you daydream about sleeping with. He cares about all forms of sin, including sexual sin, and He takes it very seriously. It's true of everything from cheating on your wife or your husband to having that lustful thought in your heart. Jesus taught us that a lustful look is adultery in our hearts. It's breaking that commandment of God not to commit adultery, just to look and imagine. And so what does it look like for us? What does it look like to run from sexual sin, practically speaking? It could look like so many things. It could look like changing your job if it's a temptation for you in the workplace. Maybe there's someone at work that you feel tempted by. Maybe you can change departments. Maybe it's because of the nature of your job or the culture of the colleagues at work. Run. Quit. It's not worth it. Maybe it's getting off social media for good to avoid the titillating posts that pervade it. Or keeping in touch with that high school crush through Facebook. Maybe it's getting off Facebook. Maybe it's cutting off access to the internet at times of day when you know it's not wise. When you're tempted. Or choosing not to use your computer in the privacy of your bedroom. To avoid the secrecy in which sexual sin grows. Maybe it's deciding not to watch that show anymore. Or that movie because you know what it will have. Maybe it's because it's sexually explicit in its content, that seems like a no-brainer, or because it feeds the lies that sexual sin is normal. It's not a big deal. Maybe it's breaking off friendships that lead you into that temptation. Maybe you already have ways that you run from temptation. Share them with others, brothers or sisters in the church that you're meeting with, that you enjoy friendship with. Ask them to keep you accountable and offer to support them in fighting for sexual purity. And it should go without saying, but obviously do that with people of the same sex. So if you're a boy with another brother in the church, if you're a man, or if you're a woman with other women in the church. You know, it's, it's not weakness to see our vulnerabilities and to run from temptation. That's not weakness. That's wisdom. That's what the Father is calling us to here. Why would you, why would we make such seemingly drastic decisions to cut off these kinds of things? Why would we even consider changing a job? Why would we consider leaving a group of friends? Well, it's because of the ruin that sexual sin causes. We see the consequences. We see the costs that are infinitely outweigh the benefits of sexual sin, or the benefits, I should say, 
In what ways will sexual sin ruin you? And verses 9 through 14, they lay them out for us. Look at verses 9 through 14. First, the Father says that your honor will be given to others. Sexual sin dishonors those who commit it. And even in our world where sex and sexual expression is being tolerated more and more, it's still seen as dishonorable to cheat on your wife. Sexual sin is still hidden behind closed doors and not made public for everyone to see. Because deep down, we all know that it's dishonorable. It's shameful. Second, there's a price tag. There's a financial cost. We see that in verse 9 where it says we pay in years. And he also says that we pay in labors that's given to a, a foreigner or to a stranger. And it's unclear exactly what this is referring to here, but it could be that it's alluding to the cost of going and visiting a prostitute that would cost you money. Or perhaps it's, it's being blackmailed. Someone finds out and they say, hey, I'll keep it quiet. I'll keep your sin quiet if you give me some money. Or perhaps in, in certain circumstances under the old covenant, there were payments that had to be made to the family of, of a person in whom sexual sin was committed with a young woman. Typically, adultery under the old covenant was, was faced the death penalty, but there were some instances where payments were made. Later in Proverbs chapter 6, it talks about trying to pay off or to compensate a jealous husband and how it won't satisfy him no matter how many gifts you give, he'll still want to take more. Now, whichever of these different ideas is, is right, it, it doesn't change the point that is being made. Sexual sin is going to cost you. Today, we see that cost in broken marriages where child support is, has to be made and alimony is made. Oftentimes, that's 40% of the spouse's income is given for alimony. It's fathers paying to provide for children who somebody else gets to tuck into bed and kiss goodnight. Heartbreaking. Third, there's a physical toll that sexual sin often takes on the body. There's a health cost. Verse 10 speaks about losing your strength, and verse 11 speaks of your flesh and your body being consumed. There's a physical toll. You may lose your health. Perhaps that's sexually transmitted diseases. Studies, though, have actually shown that there's a physical cost to watching even pornography, not just necessarily actively participating in sexual um, sexual actions, but even just in watching pornography, that consuming explicit materials over and over again actually begins to rewire your brain in a similar way that taking drugs does or other addictive habits do. You become desensitized. You need more to experience even half the amount of pleasure that you did before, and so it often takes a toll in this vicious cycle of, of diving you further and further into depravity and keeping you less and less satisfied, more and more miserable, 
more and more empty. There's even non-Christian websites that are dedicated to, to pumping this information out to help people overcome pornography addiction because of the, the effects that it has on you uh, as a person, on your relationships, on your mind, on your mental health, which is finally the, there's a psychological cost. There's the regret and shame that sexual sin brings. Look at verse 11. The Father says that at the end of your life, you'll groan. You'll groan and you'll wish that you had listened to your teachers. You'll wish you had listened to the Father to run from the ruin of sexual sin. Nobody gets to the end of their lives and on their deathbeds regrets not having more affairs or watching more pornography. No, they regret not loving their spouse better and spending more time with their family and forgiving their spouse more and not treasuring even the most mundane moments as a family together. How does it all end for the sexual sinner? Look at verse 14. What does he say? I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembly of the congregation. The sexual sinner can't escape the effects of their sin. The, the picture here isn't a church gathering for worship, but the people of God gathering in judgment. As I mentioned earlier, an adulterer under the law would mean death. His life was in utter ruin. The father heaps up reason after reason to run from the ruin of sexual sin. Foolishness is living only for the moment and forgetting about the consequences, not thinking about the end and what's going to happen. And sin promises immediate gratification, but wisdom always keeps the end in view. Where will it head? Where will it lead? Regret and ruin. That's what the Father's saying. He's emphasizing this because He knows that if we allow this, this can fuel our flight from sexual sin. If we meditate on where sexual sin is headed to social, financial, physical, mental, and spiritual ruin, then we will fight it. We will flee from it. We will run from the ruin of sexual sin. So far, we've seen that sexual sin ruins us. It makes promises, but it doesn't deliver. It seems sweet, but it only ends up bitter. It offers satisfaction, but it leaves you feeling empty. And so, is there any hope? Well, let's consider the Father's remedy to sexual sin. And that's the second point, remedy. Verses 15 to 23. In verses 15 through 19, the text takes this kind of dramatic turn. It's like a handbrake turn almost. From the serious warning against the ruin of sexual sin to a right delight in marital intimacy. Now, if you're here and you're a single person, if you're not married, I, I just want to say that it might be tempting for you at this point to tune out right about now and think, he's talking to all the married couples, he's not talking to me. And while 
these verses apply most directly to those of us who are married in this room, they are also applicable to everyone. It's God's Word. Remember that in this context, the father is actually preparing his son for marriage. So, allow this to prepare you for if God leads you to be married someday. This will also help you as you meet with fellow members in the church who are married men or women, to know how to think about helping them to honor the Lord with their marriages and how to pray for them, how to encourage them. The Father has three bullets in His gun to kill sexual sin, to to be a remedy for sexual sin, and the first is to be satisfied in God's way. Be satisfied in God's way. We see that in verses 15 to 20. This honestly might come as a shock to us, actually. Typically, if we hear anything about sex in the church, and you've heard me say sex a lot of times in this sermon already, but typically if we hear anything about sex in the church, it's often all about avoiding it and, and, and just the negative side of things. But here, we have a passionate, poetic promotion of sex from the father to his son. Marriage and marital intimacy are compared here to a cistern or to a well, and and at first that might not sound very sexy to you, might not sound very exciting, but as we all know, living in a hot climate, water is what we need to live. It's it's life-giving and sustaining, and there's a clear emphasis here from his description of the well and the cistern about the exclusivity the joyful exclusivity of a husband and wife's marriage and their intimacy. He says, this fount of blessing should be for yourself. It's your own cistern. It's your own well. It's for yourself alone. It's not for strangers. And so, sex, there's a design. There's a context for it that it's to be kept within the confines of a husband and his wife, and it's not to be public. It's to be private. It's to be shared just between them. Verses 18 through 19 describe the overflowing delight that God designed sex to be in marriage. Did you notice that as I read it? This is almost a father's prayer for his son's marriage. We see that God designed sex to be satisfying and pleasurable, a joyful delight that is regular aspect of your marriage. He says it's to fill you at all times, and it's to be always. A wife should feel cherished by her husband as a lovely deer, a graceful doe, the Father describes her. This kind of satisfaction, it shouldn't be uh, a once in a, a blue moon kind of thing. It's something that happens at all times. It's not just for the honeymoon and anniversaries. He told the son to always be intoxicated with her love. He's told the son to run from the ruin of sexual sin, but here he's telling him to get drunk on his wife's love. It's hard to imagine stronger terms, right? Drunkenness is typically considered a sin in the Bible, but there's this form of it is actually encouraged and commanded to get drunk on your wife's love. It's a vivid way to encourage his son to enjoy intimacy with his bride. What does this tell us? What does this say about our God? 
oftentimes people think that God is, is a killjoy. He doesn't want us to enjoy life and pleasure, but that couldn't be further from the truth. God's a good creator. He's actually designed sex in a way to be satisfying, to be pleasurable, to be enjoyed. He's, he's created us for pleasure in so many amazing ways, including sex within the context of marriage. That's His design. And so, the call of the Father is not to avoid sex altogether, but to enjoy it in God's way, to be satisfied in God's way. And so, how am I going to apply this passage? Seriously. Well, for married couples, ask yourselves, does this describe your physical intimacy? Are you mutually satisfied in this area of your marriage? You know, the number one reason for divorce that's given through the research that they do is lack of physical intimacy. One step towards guarding your marriage and to growing in this area would be to begin talking openly about this area of your marriage if you aren't already. It might feel awkward to do that at first, but seek to listen and learn from one another about how you might be more intoxicated in one another's love. Have fun having that conversation tonight, even, if you're married. Honor one another in this area of your marriage. This isn't describing a husband demanding something from his wife, or vice versa. It's mutual self-giving to one another. And as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 7, this mutual self-giving to one another, of loving one another in this way, guards us against unfaithfulness and guards us against sexual sins temptation. Now, for the singles, some of you may have bought into the lies that marriage isn't all it's cracked up to be. Maybe you think that you hear that common refrain, a, a wife or a husband's like a ball and chain. They're just a drag. Maybe you think it's better off to just avoid marriage altogether. But that's not the way that God describes marriage here or anywhere else in the Bible. And the only time that Scripture actually promotes singleness is in order to be totally devoted to serving the Lord, not to serving yourself. On the other hand, some of you long for this good gift. You've been praying, asking God for this for some time, I know. And so far, the Lord has not seen fit to give you a spouse. Let me just encourage you and remind you that marriage is not the epitome of godliness. The Lord Jesus Christ was single throughout His earthly life. Paul served the Lord in His singleness. And church history is actually littered with incredibly faithful saints who were single, both men and women, who served the Lord and honored Him with their singleness. And I know that that actually describes some of you. You're serving the Lord faithfully. Don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in fighting the good fight of faith in the area of sexual purity and fleeing from, running from the ruin of sexual sin. 
And don't settle for an ungodly guy or girl just to satisfy this desire. It won't be worth it. But let me encourage some of the men in the room who are single. Marriage here is pictured as a glorious thing, a wonderful gift from God. And so let me encourage you to be brave and be bold, to consider prayerfully and with counsel pursuing a godly single woman in our church if you want this gift. There are plenty of godly single girls in our church. Come and talk to one of the the elders or talk to a man who's discipling you, counseling you, and go for it. Covenant Hope Church, as you pray for one another each week, as you pray through the membership directory, let me encourage you to pray for God's protection for our marriages and pray for more marriages in our congregation. We have some that we're looking forward to in the coming weeks, so praise God for that. And the father asks here in verse 20, why why would you give up such a good thing? Why would you give up this wonderful blessing for a cheap counterfeit? Be satisfied in God's way. The second bullet in the father's gun to kill sexual sin is to be aware of God's gaze. And we see that in verse 21. It's the first time in our passage, this whole chapter, the only time that the Lord is actually mentioned. And it grounds all that the Father's been saying. He's, remember, he's saying that wisdom is living under God's rule. And so, according to God's good design for the universe, God governs us, and He leads us, and He watches over us, and He sees, including marriage and sex. One of the reasons sexual sin festers and grows in our lives is because we believe the lie that no one will ever know. Whether that's an affair or pornography, we think that we can keep it hidden. We think that we can keep it secret, but empty search histories on your, on your web browser, all the way to secret getaways with some woman, they never escape the eyes of the Lord. Verse 21 says, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders, he considers, he watches all of his paths. The Lord knows each and every step we take, every choice we make, He weighs them. He focuses on them. He ponders them in the balance of His perfect justice. You may be able to keep sexual sin secret from everybody else on earth, but you can't keep sin secret from God. He knows everything. He's God. And one day we will give an account for each and every action or thought word we've done. And so, living in light of God's ever-present gaze will actually fuel your obedience, your faithfulness. It keeps you from falling into sin. How do, you, how do you do that, though? How do you cultivate a regular awareness of God's watchful gaze over you? Let me encourage you, be creative. Create regular pit stops throughout your day to fuel a constant realization of God's presence and His closeness to you. Maybe set alarms and fire off a one-sentence prayer between your meetings or your classes. Listen to worship music which reminds you of the Lord and brings His presence to mind. Or memorize verses like verse 21. Or 
Or even think of, of Psalm 139, where David asks, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. We can't get away from God, and that's a good thing. A regular recognition of God's gaze will guard you from falling into sin. So be aware of God's gaze. The third and final bullet in the Father's gun is to beware sin's snare. Beware sin's snare. And we see that in the last two verses. Here, sin is pictured like cords that bind us and trap the wicked. And the more we indulge in sin, the tighter those binds get on us. It's like Paul Tripp writes in Do You Believe? He says, sin is not just attractive, presenting as beautiful what God says is ugly, but sin is also addictive. The pleasures of sin pass quickly, but its mastery over you remains. And so, friends, don't imagine that it will get easier to deal with this sin later on in life. Wait till you get married and you'll figure it out then. No, no, no. You must fight it now. Fight the battle now and fight it in the battlefield of your thoughts and in your mind before it ever gets out into the battleground of your actions. Fight hard now for it will only get harder later. And that's what it means when it says that he dies for lack of discipline because he won't be disciplined now to fight sin. It will only get harder. The cords will only get tighter. Don't believe the lie that if, if you only indulge in a little bit now, that you'll be able to deal with it later at some point. Sin doesn't work like that. Sin is more like jumping off a train. Never a good idea, right? But better to do it while the train is just departing from the station, while it's still moving slowly, rather than wait till it's going full steam ahead. Which do you think will end with greater pain and consequences? And so we've considered the ruin. We've considered the ruin of sin and the remedy of sexual sin, but the reality is that each and every one of us in this room is a sexual sinner. The pastors are sexual sinners. The preacher today is a sexual sinner. We may never have had an affair or had sex outside marriage, but remember the words of the Lord Jesus. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's as Pastor Ray Ortland puts it, there's a brothel in the neighborhood of my mind. And I've wandered in there. I've wandered in there a time or two. And so no matter how hard we've run, or how well we fought against sexual sin, we've all fallen short. He goes on to say, it's a big part of why I'm so thankful for the grace of the Lord Jesus. Never once has a stop off at that fantasy land made my life any better. And never once has Jesus refused to take me back and to clean me up when I come to him. 
Friends, God will judge sexual sinners, but He also stands ready to forgive them and to clean them up when they turn and run to Him in faith. Remember who Jesus spent most of His time with? Sinners. Sexual sinners. Prostitutes came to Him, and they felt welcomed by Him. And He spoke words of grace and forgiveness to them. And then he went to the cross for them. And he died for the sexual sinners. And he experienced the ruin that their sins deserved. He bore the judgment deserved for our sin in his death. And he rose again that we might have new life in him. That we might have freedom from the slavery and the snare of sin, that He would loose sin's cords from binding us so that they could overcome the seduction of sexual sin and every other sin. That's what Jesus offers us. He offers us forgiveness of sexual sin and every other sin and freedom from sin. And you can receive forgiveness and freedom today. You simply turn to Him and trust and follow. Why wouldn't you do that? Brothers and sisters, that is the freedom that you and I have, that Jesus bought with His own blood. And so, don't live as if you're a slave to this sin. Remember, as we read earlier, that you are not your own. You were bought with a price And so glorify God in your body. Ulysses, on his ship, devised a plan to resist the siren song. He made his men plug their ears with wax so that they couldn't hear them. But so that he could hear, he asked them to bind him to the mast of their ship, and to swear that they would not untie him no matter how much he pleaded. Unlike Ulysses, we shouldn't sail as close to the shores of sin as possible. We should follow Solomon's warning. He's taken aim at sexual sin, calling us to run from the ruin of it, and he's given us the ammunition to battle against it. And by the grace that's in Christ, we can fight the good fight of faith and pursue the purity that pleases the Lord. Let's pray that we will. Heavenly Father, we give you praise because your grace is greater than all of our sin, including our sexual sin, Lord. And we praise you that Christ has made a way for us to be both forgiven and set free. Oh, Lord, would you sober us. Lord, would you help us to see how serious this is. And would you help us to run from the ruin of sexual sin in our lives. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.